It's a sultry night. We are recording uh, just a short time after Sam returned from some sort of happy hour. So if he slurs his words tonight, just uh, just know he's not recording this from behind the wheel. Yeah, of course I'm not uh, piloting my own white Ford Bronco down you know I ten right now. I'm perfectly seated in my home, and you know any lies to the contrary. You know Dan's claiming that I drink. I actually don't ever drink, so don't worry about it. All right. Regardless, can we have the shouting at the bar conversation? about mayor pete <laughs> because this guy is horrible okay wh- when did so isn't his whole thing that he went to iraq in like 2000 uh, sorry afghanistan in like 2009 <laughs> yes he so after like graduating harvard and then i think uh management school he decided to take a lucrative internship in iraq or whatever which clearly means that he was like an officer he was not on the front lines or anything but of course he uses this for political capital at any occasion that he can and beyond his kind of like hollow troop stuff oh yeah he wants to institute the draft cool that's literally like a, his only policy hey that's how to get millennials in the workforce let me tell you <laughs> yeah like hey millennials like you want free health care <laughs> you want a job we got a job for you boy how about you serve your country <laughs> it's so bleak sam what vibe do you get from mayor pete and what kind of people do you think are supporting mayor pete Okay, Mayor Mayor Pete is a deep fake. He's not a real person. He was generated by some sort of algorithm. And he honestly appeals to the worst kind of brain-poisoned West Wing addict. I think we described in the very first episode of this show the deleterious effect of the West Wing and this idea that the government is should be and is run by the smartest people on earth. And the smartest people on earth is obviously defined by whether or not you went to Harvard or if you worked for McKinsey, which, I mean, Booty Judge did both of the above. Can we just say that uh, McKinsey pushed, it's like this think tank sort of thing. It's a consulting firm. Right, and they pushed out studies suggesting that uh, opioids were safe and not addictive. Yes, they did. They supported like every war. This is like a shithead, like the worst of like Washington. Like that kind of people are the ones that come out of this. Currently, I know people who work for McKinsey and are always Instagramming photos of the Golan Heights in uh, what used to be Syria and is currently being annexed by Israel. So. Either way, uh, yeah, McKinsey is a the most prestigious of the management consulting firms, along with like Bain and Boston Consulting and a bunch of other entities you probably have not heard of unless you know people who work who went to like Ivy League schools. <laughs> I think what we're trying to say here is that I think Mayor Pete might kind of be an establishment tool. Yeah, even though he. Even though he's from like South Bend, Indiana, which is apparently like Midwestern cred, right? 
Yes, but he's from South Bend, Indiana. His parents are literally like Marxist professors who taught in Notre Dame. I mean, he's he's not exactly like a, a salt of the earth kind of guy. He is about as he's more elite than either of us, even though we're from like, you know, the New York City area. Like I live in DC or whatever. I mean, he genuinely is the most annoying kind of elite who masquerades as quote-unquote working class and because we have no conception of class in this country we assume class is kind of like a combination of social signifiers which could include being mayor of south bend indiana or something like that but the thing about his whole midwest cred that's so infuriating and lots of people have brought this up is the fact that south bend indiana has like some serious like racial issues and income inequality issues and like homelessness and i guess lots of like social problems that mayor pete does not really talk about he mostly talks about how he i many people have explained this to me but i i still don't understand how it works he apparently has these like wi-fi enabled sewer systems and that's like what he talks about a lot i I don't know do you have any info on this well i know that there was that buzzfeed story i just looked it up it's uh what happens when pete Budigag. Tore down hey, booty houses. Judge, you better pronounce his fucking name right, you idiot. Pete Blitzkrieg <laughs> tore down houses in Black and Latino South Bend. Hey, by Henry J. Gomez. Uh, the pull quote at the top says, "Everyone wants to find a villain." A South Bend politician said of Mayor Pete Buttigieg's housing program. This is just how economic development happens. Dan, it's pronounced butt chug chug. Hey, only like I love that um, people got pissed at Matt Chrisman for calling him Pete Buttchug like a month ago when I, I have to say like buttchugging is the frattiest, like most like insecure straight man shit ever. Right. Yeah, the uh, the assumption as far as the outrage crowd was concerned was that butt chug is somehow like a homophobic slur when my only knowledge of the phrase butt chug comes from like the jackass movies in which like Steve O or one of these fuckers would like shove a beer bong up his ass and then pour beer in the other end so that he was supposedly like drinking beer through his ass. As you said, the most fratty like hetero nonsense i can think of hey jackass are important films um protect jackass regardless the the, i guess cult around mayor pete is very much the like consultant class they're people who value i don't know very much like appearance and like this sort of like superficial qualities like there's just been an extreme lack of like any critical anything regarding him in like the mainstream media it's it's insane it's like how they treated beto like two months ago yeah and i think the thing with pete booty judge is that he is sort of indicative of this weird trend in national politics national electoral politics where there's this fetishization of what could this guy do not what has he done because people do bring up the fact that booty judge went to harvard he was like a Rhodes scholar he worked for mckinsey oh, he was an afghan sam how'd vet. that go last time when everybody like projected all their hopes and dreams onto a presidential candidate things things uh things went really well for eight years and then donald trump became president yeah and booty judge is fucking white too i mean <laughs> 
<laughs> Either way, the um, the thing with Booty Judge is that it is indicative of a disease in our politics and especially the way we view the presidency where there is this messianic cult around who will become president and how will they revolutionize American society. And there's this fundamental ignorance of the fact that the structure of American society is fucked up. The way we set up our government is pretty fucked up. And it's going to persist until we do something kind of drastic to change that and electing some new president who was a Rhodes scholar or worked for McKinsey or whatever checks off a lot of boxes says stuff like freedom is the, you know, lifeblood of the populace or some kind of nonsense that really means nothing. This is what you're going to get. But he speaks Norwegian. That's the, that's the worst thing with him is they're like he passably spoke Italian in like two sentences. Like anyone can fucking do. Have you met actors before? They all have to learn to like do this. <laughs> well, you know, he's like the Obama clone. But we have to remember, Sam, that as we record this, this is the fucking day of the big boy Biden announcement. Hell yeah. <laughs> Folks, America's an idea. An idea that's stronger than any army, bigger than any ocean, more powerful than any dictator or tyrant. It gives hope to the most desperate people on earth. It guarantees that everyone is treated with dignity and gives hate no safe harbor. I mean, can we just talk about that announcement video? I I couldn't bring myself to watch Joe Biden's announcement video, but you did. And from what I read, there was invoking of Heather Heyer who was killed in Charlottesville by a like white supremacist terrorist and like Biden is co-opting that for his presidential run and Biden is someone who if you read anything about Heather Hayer the woman who died at Charlottesville she would have hated Biden's presidential run yeah i mean let's just off the bat clarify which Biden did not do in his video that Heather Hayer was an IWW member. She was literally a wobbly, one of the furthest left and most mainstream organizations I can think of for like a long time. I mean, she would not agree with Biden's politics full stop. I don't ever use that phrase, but here it is. And I think the thing with Biden's fucking disgusting announcement video, it was like having your I don't know. I don't have like that many boomer uncles who are really like this, but I assume it's what it's like to have some sort of 60 to seven year old uncle talking to you in this sanctimonious way about how hate has all of a sudden pervaded American politics because of Donald Trump. I mean, this fails to, you know, acknowledge the fact that Joe Biden in the past was against busing to like integrate schools and shit like that. But there is this message throughout this three and a half minute long campaign video, which is mostly just Joe Biden talking at you. I mean, you can see him squinting as he struggles to read the (laughs) teleprompter because he's like a thousand. Charlottesville, Virginia is home to the author of one of the great documents in human history. We know it by heart. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights. We've heard it so often, it's almost a cliche, but it's who we are. We haven't always lived up to these ideals. Jefferson himself didn't, but we have never before walked away from them. 
And he, like we said about his, the last video of his that we roasted on the show, like he's wheezy as hell and just, I don't know, when Bernie talks, you know, I can tell he's old, but he's got a lot of vigor and shit. Joe Biden feels like he's about to keel over. I mean, not to be ageist or anything, but goddamn, like, it's so funny because he keeps saying things like, you know, everyone around the world is asking me to run, which number one sounds like what Trump said when he ran for president, but number two like, that's just not fucking true. No one is asking for this. You should fade. If you're Joe Biden, you should fade into, I guess, being a relic of the American political past. He has nothing new to offer any of us. And his video is just such like sanctimonious nonsense that he has really nothing to do with. Or he basically created the circumstances in which these events were allowed to occur but sam in his mind everything was f- perfect before the big wet president donald trump came into office yes he and Bra- barry obama never did anything wrong and i mean dan dan picked up a piece of literature about this that i'm sure he's like raring <laughs> to show on the on this program about Barry and Joe. Dan, tell them about tell the audience about what you oh. fucking sent me screenshots of this week. Yeah, I, I found the uh at work, uh of course a <clears throat> sorry, I just dropped a couple things. Uh a discarded copy of The Adventures of Barry and Joe, which I, I mean it's this like shitty fucking like infantile book uh, about, I guess, if Obama and Biden were, like, younger, and it's the adventures of Barry and Joe, Obama and Biden's bromantic battle for the soul of America. Mm-hmm. And this is on the back. <clears throat> Don't get mad. Send Obama and Biden back in time to get even. Trigger oh, warning. God. This book is for adults. <laughs> And adult children. No, it's obviously not for adults. It's obviously <laughs> for people who have severe arrested development and never made it past whatever stage in their life they wanted to read some fan fiction about fucking like politicians fighting crime through time or something. What started as a crazy idea the day after the 2016 election has now become the glorious object you hold in your hands, a talisman of what can happen when science, creativity, crazy, comic book level antics, 80s sitcom vibes, and some serious bromance mix. The Adventures of Barry and Joe is a celebration of the friendship of Barack Obama and Joe Biden. Of course. The strength of their political minds. <laughs> <laughs> the lengths to which they would go to save us if called upon. And <laughs> here's the kicker. How Samuel L. motherfucking Jackson oh. is the only guy they could ever need to keep our country safe from zombies, bigots, and other monsters. I, I can't. I can't. So basically, if you are the kind of Arrested Development weirdo who finds a book like this compelling or fun, then you are, congratulations, the target market for the Biden candidacy. But if you're a normal human being and you want our politics to be anything other than the horse race shit show dominated by fucking literally septuagenarian like the whitest of white men who have like Joe Biden's been doing the same reactionary shitty politics for like 
decades at this point. You know what you're going to get with him. If you want more of the same that led us to this shitty point in American history, go vote for Joe Biden. Be my fucking guest. I, I, I'm I, not convincing anyone out of it. If you are an, you're going to vote for him and you're convinced, then you are no ally of any of ours. I am sorry to say that. It's true. And... I have to say, uh, this book looks about as serious an adult as Captain Underpants. <laughs> yeah, I wanted to say that as soon as you sent me the sc- the fucking pictures <laughs> of the book. I was like, this looks like Captain Underpants, but I felt like it was too childish of a reference to even use in our DMs. I don't know. We look at this, the, the whole like horse race standings now, and it seems like it's really like, Bernie, Biden, uh, gag somewhere near the top, uh, Harris too, I guess. But when I look at Mayor Pete and Joe Biden, like they very much seem like cut from the same, you know, like they, they both seem like they like, you know, uh, splintered from the same like amoeba. And I genuinely think that like the amount of bullshit centrist candidates like them you know mayor pete has no fucking policies the only like real policy i've heard from him is like fucking make everyone do mandatory service yeah the draft and also continuing the general policy that you know prisoners are not allowed to vote in u.s elections yeah, because we should base all of our policies about prisoners around how we feel. If the Boston bomber is a good guy, that seemed to be the dialogue created by, I think it was like Anderson Cooper this week. Like, what a waste of fucking time. He's such a hack. And literally a Vanderbilt. I really feel like there's going to be a big split of this centrist vote, and I think it will only help. Basically, the only two people that I could even consider voting for in the primary which are bernie sanders and elizabeth warren yeah i mean the only luckily we have uh, you know uh, bernie as well as uh you know uh, elizabeth warren has a lot of good policy ideas and a few very bad ones but better option than the vast majority of what we've been fed so far and I think it's always worthwhile because we, you know, started out the show shitting on a bunch of Democrats. Let's let's reach across the aisle. Let's see what Roger Stone is up to recently. Obviously, from our Get Me Roger Stoned episode where we analyzed the life and career and the documentary Get Me Roger Stone and just, uh, you know, all about Roger Stone and his lifetime of, you know, since really like the Nixon administration just placing himself in like a position where he seems more important than he is during historical events and uh what's what's the man up to right now obviously he was uh raided at his uh floridian home yes of course due to the Mueller probe roger stone's i guess legal costs are skyrocketing and he has tried to come up with some novel ways to generate income. And one of these is just so good, we have to mention it on the show. He is apparently due to appear and get paid a quote-unquote nice amount for giving a speech at a Virginia strip club. And he has revealed that he's <laughs> short of cash on the radio. 
Uh, he Ooh. will appear at the Paper Moon in Richmond, Virginia. <laughs> Great town. Despite being the former capital of the Confederacy, Richmond, Virginia is like a now it's a college town. Virginia Commonwealth University is down there and they have a very vibrant art scene. It's sort of like a little Brooklyn in the, you know, mid-Atlantic depths of Virginia. I recommend it, you know, to a limited dose. Just please, for the love of God, do not go into any of the suburbs around Richmond, Virginia, because they would all prefer if the Confederate States of America was still the law of the land. But in this uh, in this club, the Paper Moon in Richmond, Mr. Stone will appear alongside Kristen Davis, who is the quote-unquote Manhattan madam who ran an escort ring that was the the hiree of former New York Governor Elliot Spitzer. Ah, classic. I feel like it's got to be maybe some like intentional trolling there where he's, because Roger Stone obviously affiliated with the Republican Party, I guess, you know, has a tattoo of Richard Nixon on his back. I, I, I want to say he helped bring down Spitzer too. Yeah, no, he claims to have been and played an integral role in, I guess, bringing Elliot Spitzer down and the whole Ashley Madison scandal. But he's he's a grifter, of course. And I mean, he's currently out on literally two hundred fifty thousand dollar bail. <laughs> and I mean, Trump is going to be doing speeches in a strip club in Richmond in a few years, like. I know probably not, but like, I don't know, Donald Trump, th- that seems like something he would do. I mean, the Richmond location kind of confuses me because it's Richmond's not that close to Washington, D.C. It's like uh, the traffic on I-95 between D.C. and Richmond is always bad all times of day for no reason. It takes at least like three hours to drive down there from up here. And it's not even close to where he lives in fucking Florida. It's a very random location. I don't know what's going on with this whole ruse, but I mean, he claims he will be paid a quote unquote nice amount and you got to pay those legal fees somehow. But like, can you imagine being, I guess, the the strip club goer? You've got like your trench coat and sunglasses and like sweatpants on or like whatever the fuck people wear to strip clubs. And you're just like so goddamn excited to see what like titties and Roger Stone. What a weird life. I mean, he is a swinger, so perhaps <laughs> he will perform some burlesque uh, <laughs> to make ends meet with a few tips. Guys, just got like the tassels on and then he turns around. <laughs> Fucking Richard Nixon is glaring you out of nowhere. Come on. This is ridiculous. Oh, God, yeah, the back tattoo. All right, let's move into the main event. What do you dream for? That less people have to say goodbye too soon to people they love. I had heard about Theranos and Elizabeth Holmes. But you know, her story is so compelling. She was going to herald a revolution in medical treatment in this country. It was obviously such an incredible story. A woman creating this $9 billion company. Everyone worshipped the ground she walked on. She could do no wrong. She was the next Steve Jobs. The idea with the Edison was to stick the lab inside the box. She wanted Edison devices in every home in America. This could be the apple of healthcare. You all are part of something that is going to change our world. What higher purpose is there? Elizabeth came to me, and she described her idea. It's impossible, physically. Elizabeth was lying about the accuracy of the blood tests. It's all a show. 
she didn't want anybody to see what was going on in there. I have been excited to talk about this. Uh, you know, I, I, I read a fantastic book about the topic. We're going to break down the Theranos scandal, the uh, d- demented, I guess, uh, Elizabeth Holmes, and also the movie on hbo the documentary that was made about it which uh it it was interesting to put uh you know a face to a lot of the events uh you know that you're reading about but uh definitely had some issues with it all right sam where do we start with this i was gonna say i mean so we we consume some media to be able to talk about elizabeth holmes and the theranos fucking debacle that I guess kind of rocked the news a few years ago and has recently resurged as a kind of cultural zeitgeist moment. And it's in a lot of ways, it's similar to what we described with Firefest, but it, it really is on like a different scale because for people who don't know, Theranos was a company that claimed that it was able to run hundreds of tests, like blood tests that normally you would have to go to Quest Diagnostics or some other you know, some other diagnostics firm and get a ton of blood drawn to have done, you would, you know, Dan, have you ever been to like Quest Diagnostics or gotten like a blood test for a random screening or like if you thought that you had a certain disease? I remember I, I, my mom thought I had Lyme disease and she sent me to Quest Diagnostics and they pumped just like buckets of blood out of me and then it turned out i didn't have lyme disease and that was like my only experience with it i mean have you ever had a similar experience you know i i do i I don't have uh, a memory of going to like uh you know test center to have my blood drawn but i have obviously my blood drawn like at my doctor i can understand some of like the descriptions that elizabeth holmes sort of made in her like initial pitch was hey people are afraid of needles what if what if i could create a device create this like silicon valley company to create a device where with a single uh finger prick um that and uh just a few drops of blood could test all of your shit like all of your levels, you know, test for diseases, test for herpes, test for whatever from your house. Now I can understand like the appeal of that idea, but as we'll go into, the promise of that w- was never going to happen. Right, and you perfectly described, I guess, Elizabeth Holmes's mission or the Theranos dream because. Obviously, like all these Silicon Valley startups have some sort of end game that they're working towards with Steve Jobs, who, as we will describe, is sort of Elizabeth Holmes is, I guess, idol and like her, you know, he's the guy that she wants to emulate. I mean, with him, he really saw into the future and realized that computers would not be meant for just businesses or for the corporate world, it would be something that everyone would want to have. And of course, that is a revolutionary idea. I mean, we are recording these podcasts on a couple of personal computers. Dan, I think you're even recording this on a Mac. You know, this is 
it is a genuinely revolutionary thought. But a lot of dumb people have taken the fact that Steve Jobs was revolutionary without learning to code or anything like that, just having this kind of futuristic view of like human nature and also being very lucky that you can apply this to anything including biotechnology or medical technology in this case you cannot because in silicon valley the fake it to you make it attitude and you know this is something that as we talked about in the fire festival documentaries associated with like millennial culture and keep in mind like part of elizabeth's whole sell as a ceo was she was so young she was 19 when she started uh the company right i believe after dropping out of stanford after a year and a half of coursework but either way as i like what i was saying before is that like you perfectly enumerated her dream like her steve jobs dream was that you would have like a desktop device that would prick your finger and tell you whether or not you had to go to the doctor she's so delusional at a certain point that she even believes that she would be able to have technology that would like treat you as soon as you got your finger stuck like it would somehow use nanotechnology to inject like antibiotics or something into your finger and I think one of the best people that they have in some of the media we consume, because we watched the HBO documentary that you mentioned, but we also listened to the brilliant podcast, The Dropout. And Dan, you read Bad Blood, at, which is by uh, John Carreyrou, who was the reporter from The Wall Street Journal, who really honestly becomes like an integral part of the story at a certain point. John Carreyrou exposed Theranos through his like dogged reporting at, like as we'll go into like this was a company that was not afraid to make fucking threats right and the the headline of the Wall Street Journal article that he wrote is so fucking brilliantly understated it is hot startup Theranos has struggled with its blood test technology. And of course, as we're going to find out, this idea that you can create like a desktop computer that would take this wildly accurate blood sample from just a finger prick and then give you antibiotics to combat it was completely fake. And it was a dream and nothing more than that. There is no hard science to produce this. And the... I guess the hoops that they jumped through and the smoke and mirrors they employed to make it look for over a decade that Theranos was a real company that really created this extremely groundbreaking technology is just a purely amazing 2010s kind of story. Okay, let's go into sort of the like journey that Elizabeth Holmes went on to create Theranos and like its eventual downfall. So how do you describe her appearance? It's like that blonde hair, blue eyed. <laughs> so why don't you talk about it? Like how she presented herself. Dan, you have left out the most crucial factor of her visage, which is the cold, like limpid, unblinking eyes of Elizabeth Holmes. Oh, big she, time. Uh, so, She's not blink. Yeah, multiple people in the film, the podcast, the book, the article, all the media talk about how she does not blink. And she even personally interviewed, like, the receptionist who worked at Theranos and, you know, a lot of people to ensure loyalty. But her, 
she and of course as she gets deeper into this kind of Silicon Valley nonsense world. She starts to take on, I guess, some of Steve Jobs's affectations, including the black turtleneck. At one point, she claims to own, like, over a hundred of these black turtlenecks. And she's like, well, I just can wear whatever... I don't have to think about what I wear. I just open the closet and pull out a new turtleneck. And she makes her voice... I'm not doing that voice as an affectation. I mean, I am, but, like, that's the way she talks. Drop it in right here, boys. Oh, my God. When I first heard this, Sam, it, it's just because, like, I, I read it, like, you know, like, I'd heard it before, but when we were, like, researching for this episode, like, reading it and then, like, actually hearing it, I, I, like, it's astonishing the degree to which, I don't know, like, this is an audio medium, so why don't you guys just uh, feast your ears on some like a person who is clearly trying to make their voice sound deeper than it is. I grew up spending summers and the holidays with my uncle. I remember his love of crossword puzzles and trying to teach us to play football. I remember how much he loved the beach. I remember how much I loved him. He was diagnosed one day with skin cancer, which all of a sudden was brain cancer, and in his bones. He didn't live to see his son grow up, and I never got to say goodbye. So the pathology behind her sort of deepening her voice, which I know in the book it was described like, she would occasionally like slip up in a meeting when she would get excited and she would break into like a normal like unguarded voice but then she'd go back into her like I'm Elizabeth Holmes <laughs> voice which I guess she felt in a male dominated industry that she had to project sort of a masculine voice yeah I, I don't think we would have singled out the voice as a distinctively Holmesian thing if it was actually her voice, like if she actually sounded like that. But because it is so frequently described in the documentary or in the podcast we listen to or the book that you read as being an affectation and being part of her like Steve Jobs persona, it's just like she clearly put it on and would slip up as you said and apparently had kind of more of a normal, I guess like high-pitched you know, she's from like Northern California. She's like a blonde woman from up there. She sounds like that. She sounds kind of like a valley girl normally. But uh, in order to convince people that she was this brilliant startup founder, she kind of borrowed the Steve Jobs voice. And it is jarring to hear because it's it's like when I was a kid and I was trying to sound more adult. I mean, like, I'm not a woman. I'm not going to like try to weigh in on the struggles that I guess female CEOs or female startup phone founders face in Silicon Valley. At the same time, I can tell it's a put on. Definitely. So she starts this company and the positive press just floods in. We see in the doc, this uh, New Yorker writer and this fortune magazine writer who just got totally duped by Elizabeth in terms of the things she made, uh, the, I don't know, the, pr the 
promises that she made about certain technologies and I don't know in hindsight it's like how could you possibly have believed this woman but you know looking at what like she was able to like assemble with the company in terms of like the board the sort of powerful people that lended it enough credibility I guess where they believed her just bald-faced lies and to be clear about like the I guess like unfeasibility of the technology that she was promising to people. She there's one of the most interesting, I guess, interview subjects of both the movie and the podcast was Phyllis Gardner, who is a Stanford professor who has served on the board of multiple, you know, startups for technology, biotechnology, et cetera. And she basically, when she talked to Elizabeth Holmes about this idea, said, no, it's physically impossible. You cannot do what you're claiming that you can do. And applying this like millennial gusto or, you know, obviously, like we mentioned that she only spent a year and a half at Stanford and she cashed in on this, I guess, the cachet of being a Stanford dropout, this idea that like dropping out from Stanford somehow makes you similar to like Steve Jobs or Bill Gates or one of these other like well even Zuckerberg right this idea that it's it's not like just they made it in spite of dropping out of college it's actually like they made it because they dropped out of college it's like fetishization of the, their just basic background and also I mean like these are all like fucking privileged white guys who were able to do this I mean it's I don't know it's more than just the you know the pedigree or lack thereof but either way I mean as long as we're going to talk about Elizabeth Holmes's pedigree she her dad worked for Enron uh, Don Lucas one of the early investors who is like a legendary tech investor talks about how he just thought she was so compelling because her great uncle had been a doctor and her grandfather had been an entrepreneur and he literally says like on one side she's got the business and on the other side she's got medicine i mean that combination of course she was going to do something great there's like this almost like biologically determinant ideology behind this i guess conception that sort of like i guess what we were talking about with pete booty judge earlier about like this idea that because he checks off so many boxes he would be like the perfect president they in Elizabeth Holmes saw this perfect entrepreneur and like this perfect CEO it was like this, you know, she was a young woman. She didn't let people tell her what she couldn't do. And she had these smart people in her family or whatever. When of course we can look at this from a material point of view and say, look, she had like rich fucking family. Of course she was going to be taken seriously by, as you said, this board of like, doddering elder statesman so we should go into the people who i guess drank the theranos kool-aid oh my god well these are some heavy hitters a, a very big character in this is george schultz the former secretary of i think it was like state and also like i think he was secretary of labor like he, he's he'd been around the government for a while yeah consummate grand- age elder statesman right so this guy was Elizabeth's champion, and he brought in people from across, like, the, I guess, like, powerful sectors, you know, the military. We had James Mattis, Mad Dog Mattis, who obviously later became, uh, you know, pretty powerful in the Trump cabinet. We also see 
these come later, but Robert Kraft, the owner of the New England Patriots, and uh, you know he's uh, in a hand job lawsuit right now, mm-hmm. um, and Rupert Murdoch threw in uh, like over a hundred million. You you have Henry Kissinger was an early uh, board member. You have a former CEO of Wells Fargo whose name I can't remember. And at St- at Stanford too. I mean, like we, I think maybe we have mentioned the fact that like Stanford is, you know, a mill for these like startup figures who get a ton of VC money. But Phyllis Gardner, the professor I quoted earlier, is saying that Elizabeth Holmes's technology was physically impossible. Her husband was on the board for years after that. And Channing Robertson, who had a tenured fucking professorship at Stanford and was like a very well-respected figure, fucking left his job at Stanford to work for her. And just people like really point to him as just being like, you understand the technology. You know, this is largely impossible. Like what the hell is wrong with you? What is, what is your angle in this? Like with so many of these people, I don't know with like the politicians, I'm kind of, they probably didn't know enough about the technology to understand it. Many of them were very old and there was a reason why they did not have any like real medical professionals on the main board or like people who were like, really proficient in like laboratory science because they all would have known that the tech was failing and fake, you know? And I I just think that there was a, a certain like level where like she literally was just like Lyle Landley-ing them. You know what I mean? There's a sense that, you know, like the monorail uh, episode of the Simpsons, like it's literally just, she was selling them nothing like this was an a complete empty promise based on like a complete fantasy that they all really like had the ability to at a certain point to like know better and i think many of them like were seeing the signs but you know that the whole thing was failing but it's insane that they all lent credibility to this like absurd project Right, and that was something that I think I approached this documentary and this story with was this sense of how could this happen? How could all of these like supposedly smart people get hoodwinked? And there are actually some pretty solid structures that allowed this to happen. I mean, she kept the company as many Silicon Valley companies are. She kept them that private for many years, for almost I think the whole time, and this. I mean, when you were a privately held company, you are kind of exempt from a lot of the prying eyes that would have maybe found out the fact that you are a fraud. And another part of this, I think, is the privatized medical system in the United States. I mean, one of her the only reason that Theranos was able to inflict its punishment on you know, the the broad populace, other than like, it was so bleak how they were describing the people who would sign up to get their blood drawn by Theranos in like Northern California, which is, you know, such an unequal place. And especially in like the suburbs in Silicon Valley, it's so, it, the people who were showing up were apparently frequently like, you know, homeless, like had mental issues or hepatitis. Of, had hepatitis. Like, yeah, a lot of people like didn't know whether the blood they were handling, but people who worked at Theranos didn't know whether the blood they were handling like had communicable diseases in it and stuff. 
And beyond that, they were able to expand into Arizona and partner with Walgreens, which I'm sure every listener to this show is familiar with, you know, massive pharmacy chain across the United States, which lent them this air of legitimacy. And I, like I said, just watching this and reading about this and listening to the podcast about this, I really sort of understood the machinery behind it. And it's a lot of things. It's the, you know, the private, private, privately held company, the, I think the fact that they had so many of these like doddering old ex-military types in on the board made them Yeah, think- Kissinger and Schultz are both in their 90s. Right. And and Mattis, like, I think they lent this idea that maybe it was like a military project. And that gives you more, like I can tell you. There was a straight up lie that the technology, like the Theranos Edison devices were being used in medevac helicopters in the Middle <gasps> East. Right. And even if that lie had not been, you know, had not been perpetrated, I think they could also credibly claim like, oh, what we're producing is very secret, which is why we're you know privately held and why the military is interested in it. And once the military becomes involved in anything, I can tell you any government contract shit, especially, you know, in DC area is going to be, I guess, just completely secret. And you have total license to like fudge the numbers. That's why so much fraud happens in, you know, the quote unquote swamp. But another piece of this, I think, is like, the journalism around her. And I think it's great that the documentary actually gets a, and and the podcast too, both get a very genuine reaction from Roger Parloff, who wrote for fortune and was one of the first people to, I guess, embrace Elizabeth Holmes. And he literally wrote the article that has the absurdly vague description of how her technology works, which is what tipped off John Carreyrou, the wall street journal uh, journalist who brought down it. I got to be honest, in uh, Bad Blood in the book, uh, Roger comes off as a real schmuck. Like, (laughs) the movie definitely gave him a chance to, like, you know, talk about how he was hoodwinked. And in the movie, they do have some of Roger's, like, taped interviews with Elizabeth. And she did not consent to be interviewed for the movie. And the only reason the movie had so much tape uh, and footage of her was because um, documentarian Errol Morris was recruited to create uh, ad campaigns for her. And this was another, like, legacy, you know, star. He's, like, a famous documentarian, famously of the Thin Blue Line and many other movies, that gave this company, like, credibility. I mean, Sam, we haven't even mentioned, like, she hired literally the people who did, like, the famous 80s Apple campaign. Right. Absolutely. No, we have not mentioned that. And she also had like, even the journalists that were more skeptical of her, like Ken Aletta of The New Yorker, still had this early on, had this like fetishization of her, you know, crazy work schedule. Like she wears the same thing to work every day because she doesn't take a day off. And there, I feel like with Elizabeth Holmes, like she, do you, I don't know, early, I feel like in high school, there were these, maybe these kids who thought that because they were social outcasts or because they were like bookworms or insular. They thought that that was like something very unique about themselves. This idea that they, you know, were treated inward and would read tons of books or something. Well, it's this Harry Potter idea that I am, I am this like misunderstood, like hated, whatever. Like I don't fit in anywhere, but like one day I'm just going to get a letter and be whisked off to find out I'm like a, a really famous magician. 
you know? Yeah, and these people frequently claim to be, I guess, like victimized by their schools or by their friends or whatever. And that's like probably true to some extent. But at the same time, I think a lot of them really like being that kind of person. It's a way for them to feel superior to other people. And I definitely see Elizabeth Holmes this way. Like early on, there's so much discussion of how she like studied Mandarin on her weekends and spent her time doing like weirdo shit. I'm like, that doesn't mean that you get to make biotechnology. It doesn't mean you get to like make medical devices. It's not a qualification. (laughs) I think that I was getting at this before. It has to be stated that you can't just fake it till you make it with medical technology because you're dealing with like human lives and there are like human consequences. And, you know, with apps and products for like Apple, for ins- for example, for Uber, whatever, like the app can fuck up and it doesn't like kill anyone. But the Theranos devices could easily jeopardize lives no and absolutely that's like what comes to a head when they expand into you know they go live in phoenix when they are unable to deliver on most of the promises they had made and we'll go into that in more depth but dan i think you would like me to introduce a key fucking character in this story the number two to elizabeth holmes is fucking number one is this dude sunny bolwani i sam i have been reading this book like on and off for like maybe six weeks um, I have to say, putting a face to Sonny Balwani when watching the movie, oh my god. So where do you start with Sonny? He is uh, an immigrant to this country who, I, I, I think his whole shtick is he came here with nothing, and he struck it rich, kind of like Mark Cuban style, right place at the right time. And claim to have like I don't know like, like millions and millions and millions of dollars from some software that he was able to sell, and decided um, to join Theranos after well he met Elizabeth on a trip to China that was like with a group some sort of sciency thing, and you know she was like nineteen and. Sam, could you look up that age difference for me? Yes. Uh, or was she even younger? When did they meet? Like, uh, no, I'm- you're right that she met when they met when she was like 19 years old, and on that trip, it, like you said, for her weird obsession with Mandarin Chinese. Having said that, Ramesh Sunny Bulwani was born, <laughs> fucking in. Well, they don't know because I, I guess he maybe doesn't have a birth certificate. But like, he was born between March and June of 1965. Okay, and uh, speed through a little bit about like his like he meets Elizabeth Holmes in China, undetermined when it started. But uh, well, Sam, what's the age difference there? Okay, so he is. 53 to 54 years old and i think that elizabeth holmes is like in her early 30s like a 20 year age difference i believe yeah it's uh it's it's large and uh yeah they started dating uh soon after that and this was a big secret that nobody uh in the company was supposed to know but that they were terrible at hiding since they 
entered um, the Theranos building at the same fucking time every day. And I guess now we can kind of go through like what it was like inside Theranos, Sam. And I, I mean, like Sonny was kind of the enforcer around the office. But at the same time, the enforcer who served no purpose other than to like intimidate and demean people. And it's unbelievable. The like small, I, I you can't call this a small business, but just like the business tyrant. Yeah. Sonny. Like, what do you think like went into like creating this, this like force? Well, supposedly he like monitored basically every employee's email. So people described, you know, sending emails to other people in the department and then getting a reply from Sonny Bomani, even though he wasn't CC'd on there. <laughs> and also, what was his like position? He was like the number two with the company. He was president and chief operating officer. And I guess, as you said before, I think a lot of people, you know, these these kids who are like working for Theranos, a lot of them are like very, you know, children of elite, I guess, like Silicon Valley people. They're like Stanford grads. They're like, a lot of them, I mean, plenty of them are like PhDs or, you know, research scientists, like very serious people. And Sonny Bawani, I mean, as you said, made a lot of money the off of like- fucking idiot. Yeah, he's a dunce. <laughs> and he, he made a ton of money off of this company called Commerce One. He made like $40 million shortly before the company went out of business, right before the dot-com bubble burst. So people, I think, there had a pretty low opinion of him generally, especially given the fact that- he had, as you, I think, alluded to, this disgusting and bizarre, like, relationship with Elizabeth Holmes. Like, they were living together. And when Theranos went, you know, belly up and and Sonny Bolwani was fired, they stopped living together. <laughs> and one thing I've, like, always I, I've thought about their relationship, because obviously it's, like, gross to think about Elizabeth Holmes, who is v- vaguely, like kind of androgynous and desexualized the idea of her fucking is gross the idea of Sonny Bolwani this like 55 year old Pakistani man fucking is gross but the idea of him fucking each other is honestly just impossible for me to picture so I genuinely think they probably did not have sex and they probably just like spewed jargon and like Silicon Valley business nonsense into each other's brains like all night like they probably just stayed up literally all night talking about like you know we're at a new inflection point and that's why i think that we need to devote our energy to synergy like i'm sure that they had a very platonic disgusting like silicon valley relationship i mean the book by uh carrie rue really digs like into just how much of like an incompetent like fool sunny was he knew nothing about science or biology, nanotechnology, lab technology. His job was to make sure that different departments in Theranos did not like coordinate with each other, did not speak to each other. Secrecy was the highest priority at Theranos. And the employees believed that this was because, I don't know, it was because the technology was like so important that everything had to be so secret like, you know, maybe it's like that we, you know, and all these like people from the government are on the board. So maybe it's like we're working on like something for the government ultimately. But like the reality is nobody could talk to each other because it's clear that Elizabeth knew that the whole thing was a fraud. Now, I guess we could go into how 
most of the blood tests that Theranos promised they could do in these Walgreens stores had to not be processed uh, from the finger prick and, you know, the Edison, you know, uh, reading device that Theranos said was like their like product that was going to like change the world. Yeah, that's the thing we described earlier. They named it the Edison. It was this idea that you would have like a desktop computer or like, I don't know, a fucking blender or something like that that would give you these insanely accurate medical readouts based on literally just a finger prick. Like you would stick your finger into this stupid toaster and then it would like give you, tell you whether or not you had a serious illness or something. But instead, they were using commercially purchased third-party analyzers from companies like Siemens, like competitors. So Theranos was not using their own technology to do a huge majority of the tests they promised they could do. So... And they had two ways of doing that. They had two ways of lying about it. They, the first way was they would sit you down and they would stick a needle in your arm, which is not what you're expecting. You're expecting I just get a finger prick and because that's like the whole fucking point of this stupid startup. But you would get you know a standard needle in your arm and they would pump like three bags of blood out of you and they would say, I'm sorry, the test that you requested requires this process. We're not able to do it with the, you know, the nano prick or whatever the fuck they called it technology and the other way they did this was by doing which they eventually moved to was by doing the nano prick but then they would dilute the samples from that because they would get a tiny amount of blood from you and then put that into the commercial you know blood testing machine from Siemens or whatever like you described (laughs) which is even worse because it's just like you're not only are you lying about what you can do, but at least if you're like pumping three black bags of blood out of somebody, you're probably going to get like a, a, a real readout. But if you use this like hocus pocus and you just pump about a, what, a bunch of water into the nano prick and then put it into it, you're not going to detect any of the shit you're trying to detect. It's clearly fake. So when you're talking about like the struggles that were going on to like design these Edison machines, like the shit was just jamming. It was like dripping blood, like all over the place. Like there was also this, this thing where, you know, when they took the finger prick samples, the samples had to be diluted with this solution. So anytime you dilute a sample from like one drop of blood, it's going to be like way less useful for like most tests. Absolutely, which is like the thing I described earlier, but the, I think the other thing with the Edison that was so fucking funny to me was because Holmes and Bolwani did not really have, like you said, a kind of science or physics background, which is crucial here. They did, they were constantly trying to make it so that the machine would be, like I said, kind of the size of like a blender or like a food processor or like a Macintosh like it literally looks like an old Macintosh computer which I'm sure is not an accident given her like Steve Jobs obsession but engineers and physicists and like research scientists who they worked with would say like no you got to make it bigger because you can't fit all the machinery that you're talking about and have it do all the tests that you're talking about in the vessel that you're describing it cannot be the size of like a fucking blender and they would just be like "Mm, i think you need to innovate baby like uh can you make it (laughs) can you put some gumption into this please 
And then it's described that basically they would have meetings where they would tell her, like, it's impossible to put this uh, device in something of this a casing of that size. And she literally would, like, brush it off and then spend, like, two hours talking about what they were going to name the cloud service where they would store the patient's data. So she was preoccupied totally with, like, marketing and the appearance that the company was uh, innovative and that it was going to succeed and change the world and that it was already happening when... I mean, the employees inside started to really figure out that this was all fucking bullshit. Um, Even, I guess, before John Carrieru started reporting the story. But, uh, so what were some, what were some, like, I don't know, like, inside, it just seems like, because, you know, as, like, a labor sort of issue, I mean, can you think of like more of like a tyrant sort of boss environment where like your emails are uh, traced, you're um, required to basically work seven days a week? That's the culture at the office. I I mean, what'd you make of all that? What was funny to me was that, you know, when I guess Republicans or conservatives in general talk about how bad you know how north korea is this totalitarian state where you can't question the leader and you don't know what's real and everything's a fraud and all this shit like she and bolwani were able to create this that very fucking environment just within a company basically as you described no one knew what anyone else was doing everyone was afraid that someone was going to stab them in the back in the company they couldn't even tell their family members they worked at Theranos. Like, that was how, like, strict this NDA was, which, like, as I guess uh, they talk about uh, a little bit in the movie, like, it's questionable that that's even, like, kind of legal. That's, like, the level of the contracts they had the employees sign. Either way, it creates this, as you said, impossible work environment, especially when what you're trying to do is this like high science sort of thing. Like you're trying to create a technology that literally doesn't exist using the most cutting edge technology that does exist. And anyone who took their job seriously was in for a shock. And I think the story of Ian Gibbons, a Cambridge PhD who worked there, and was basically ostracized by Sonny and Elizabeth when he made it clear that he did not buy their nonsense and was troubled by how bad their methodology was and how their... I mean, like, they were literally describing, I guess, every time they got results, uh, every time they tested the accuracy of the testing process of the, you know, the Edisons or whatever, their methodology, they would basically scrap all the data that made it look like they didn't know what they were doing or like there was a problem with it. And their margin of error was just enormous. Right. And they would just throw out outliers of just basically, you know, at will, like that would be the policy, which is like not how any like science is done. Right. Right. And I mean, this guy, Ian Gibbons, who was a respected scientist and I mean, a person who worked his whole life to, I guess, be a rigorous, you know, fucking guy. And he's someone who was like just a few years from retirement. Like he, like, 
he had like a distinguished career and like actually knew about biology and you know this technology and stuff but i mean this sort of overwhelming pressure of the secrecy and the patent lawsuit of john fuiz uh, i don't know how he pronounced the name but this was the friend of elizabeth holmes's mother and father who i guess filed a patent that uh is kind of described uh, at length in the book but you know he filed a patent uh saying something vaguely similar to the theranos technology so essentially uh there was a lawsuit pending um it never i don't think it ever happened i think that basically they they realized that they couldn't win it because there was um you know theranos had like deep pockets having raised like nearly how much did they raise sam I mean, by the time Walgreens and became a customer, I believe Theranos was valued at like nine billion dollars, and Elizabeth Holmes, you know, as a majority owner, was worth like five billion dollars or something like that. Like it's serious money. So deep pockets for legal expenses, which was a tactic Theranos uh, is not sparing with. Um, the patent lawsuit that was going to be filed like was going to depose Ian Gibbons and Ian uh, fearful and depressed about the idea that he was going to break his Theranos non-disclosure agreement in a legal deposition or that he would perjure himself and end up in prison himself. Uh, he started drinking a lot and the like, I mean the night that, his wife uh, told like told him she thought he was going to lose his job and like right before he was going to testify and he'd been like working at home for a while because elizabeth wanted him nowhere near the office uh he killed himself with a combination of alcohol and pills and elizabeth the only contact uh ian's wife rochelle received from theranos like a guy who devoted years of his life to this fucking company was demanding that she return all of his like computer and documents that he had at home and his badge so literally didn't even fucking send flowers nothing nothing and that's this whole company is built on empathy and ian gibbons was driven to suicide by the kind of company this woman was running and she had absolutely no empathy for that. This whole fucking thing built on like, oh, if we're just a fing- finger prick and we can save everyone, you know, it, it's it, it's just an illustration of how absolutely uh, fucking insane this this story got. That I, I mean, the kind of secrecy doesn't really seem sustainable in any fucking environment. Absolutely. So, I mean, Dan, how how does this finally fall? Because there are a couple of whistleblowers, but eventually the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, after an anonymous tip from, I believe the name of the whistleblower was... Erica Chung. Erica Chung. And either way, they eventually, eventually they like raid the facility, which, as we said, it was privately held up at this point, so there was no real oversight over it. And they, of course, find that the methodology is dog shit. None of their tests work. It's a total fucking fraud. And they shut it down. Elizabeth uh, Holmes. I keep wanting to say Elizabeth Warren. <laughs> <laughs> Not Elizabeth Warren. 
but Elizabeth Holmes was very friendly with the Obama administration. Joe Biden made a visit to Theranos. Yeah, and he said, this is the future, which is amazing. And that was like, am I wrong in thinking that was like right before John Carreyrou dropped like the October 2015 like bombshell article? Yeah, I believe so. It was like right around that time. And it is funny, though, the way they described how they would hoodwink executives or visitors to like the Theranos headquarters. And they would basically put the blood test into the fake Edison, then ferry the, you know, the person who was tested out of the room, show them around the campus. And then like engineers would run in and grab the blood test out of the Edison, put it into like a, you know, a commercial blood testing device and then come back and like feed it back into the Edison so that they could, it looked like the Edison did the whole, you know, the little blender or whatever did the whole fucking test. It's amazing. The level of like smoke and mirrors and shit, but honestly, Elizabeth Holm and uh, Sonny Bawani get off pretty easy. They get like a $500,000 fine. They do not admit to wrongdoing. And Elizabeth Holm is barred from serving as an officer at a public company for 10 years. But as we mentioned extensively, Theranos wasn't even a public company. So there's not really much at this point barring her from doing another Theranos. And I don't believe Theranos has like uh, like ever paid out this, the Walgreens settlement, uh, you know, after Walgreens sued them. I mean, there, there's, there's some th- threads still hanging, but the downfall was really triggered. Uh, kind of an amazing story how Tyler Schultz, the grandson of the board member who touted Elizabeth around and made her uh, credible to a lot of the like uh, statesmen and uh, you know various uh, uh, banking and uh, you know f- elite figures. And even to his grandson, who was like a trained engineer, and then eventually was like, can I work for Theranos? This sounds so amazing. Like, my fucking grandfather, who's like this elder statesman, is so enthralled with this. Like, how do I get in on it? Right. And this guy, Tyler Schultz, uh, ended up, uh, along with Erica Chung and this guy, Alan Beam, who also worked at the company, uh, they were like the main anonymous sources uh, for the like bombshell Wall Street Journal article that uh, John Carreyrou wrote, and they've since like come forward. It, it really did take a lot of courage because the amount of intimidation that clearly like Sonny and Elizabeth were like paying for. I mean, Carreyrou himself said he he knows for a fact that he was being followed based on uh, getting a call from the uh, lawyer David Boys about uh, a meeting he'd had with Tyler where like you know they hadn't told anyone they were going to be there and someone had clearly been following them because they knew and to be f- like for people who don't know David Boys's name he's like one of the most famous like litigators in you know modern legal history and he like having David Boys on your trail is like having Boba Fett on your trail or something like that it's like some kind of cartoonish villain but I don't know. Eventually, obviously, this all came crashing down. It was amazing that Tyler Schultz, the whistleblower, described how 
even like the fact that he was close to George Schultz, who was, you know, a board member and an early proponent of the company, his parents wind up paying like hundreds of thousands of dollars in legal fees to fight off Theranos's army of lawyers and David Boys, like we mentioned. But the only thing that eventually like called off that offensive against Tyler Schultz was the fact that John Carreyrou's article and the CMS raid made it that like people i mean they had bigger fish to fry after a certain point they sort of left schultz alone and i mean it just goes to show i guess like how weirdly cutthroat silicon valley can get over really nothing i mean like literal just fraud and i mean like were they even making that obviously elizabeth holmes became like a billionaire but like what does that even translate into in terms of like material gains? Like what is the goal of this? It's it really to me seems like it's innovation, disruption, yeah. synergy. <laughs> it's not even for like a a financial gain or something. It, it it really seems to be mostly for like self-aggrandization and this belief that you can I guess innovate your way out of reality even. Like it's like th- these people are like literally dissociated from reality, I think. So I, one biographical detail I couldn't get out of my mind was this line uh, in the book that uh, in Bad Blood uh, that says, and this is talking about the death of her uh, Elizabeth's uncle Ron Dietz, a family member who died, who she invoked to uh, like sell the company as being like, oh, if he had had these tests, he could have lived. Uh, she, Carrie Rue says. To family members who knew the reality of their relationship, using his death to promote her company felt phony and exploitive. <laughs> so she's a fucking sociopath. I don't know. I- I'm sure that there's some serious mental issues going on there. And uh, Sam, I, I-, I want to just read from the epilogue a little bit of a Bad Blood, if you don't mind. Go for it. The term vaporware was coined in the early 1980s to describe new computer software or hardware that was announced with great fanfare, only to take years to materialize if it did at all. It was a reflection of the computer industry's tendency to play it fast and loose when it comes to marketing. Microsoft, Apple, and Oracle were all accused of engaging in the practice at one point or another. Such overpromising became a defining feature of Silicon Valley. The harm done to consumers was minor, measured in frustration and deflated expectations. By positioning Theranos as a tech company in the heart of Silicon Valley, Holmes channeled this fake-it-until-you-make-it culture, and she went to extreme lengths to hide this fakery. Many companies in Silicon Valley make their employees sign non-disclosure agreements, but at Theranos, the obsession with secrecy reached a whole different level. Employees were prohibited from putting Theranos on their LinkedIn profiles. Instead, they were told to write that they worked for a private biotechnology company. Some former employees received cease and desist letters from Theranos lawyers for posting descriptions of their jobs at the company that were deemed too detailed. Balwani routinely monitored employees' emails and internet browser history. He also prohibited the use of Google Chrome on the theory that Google could use the web browser to spy on Theranos' R&D. Employees who worked at the office complex in Newark were discouraged from using the gym because it might lead them to mingle with workers from other companies that leased space at the site. Now, uh, jumping ahead a little bit, 
Hyping your product to get funding while concealing your true progress and hoping that reality will eventually catch up to the hype continues to be tolerated in the tech industry, but it's crucial to bear in mind that Theranos wasn't a tech company in the traditional sense. It was first and foremost a healthcare company. Its product wasn't software, but a medical device that analyzed people's blood. As Holmes herself liked to point out in media interviews and public appearances at the height of her fame, doctors base 70% of their treatment decision on lab results. They rely on lab equipment to work as advertised. Otherwise, patient health is jeopardized. So how was Holmes able to rationalize gambling with people's lives? One school of thought is that she became captive to Balwani's nefarious influence. Uh, <laughs> he then kind of dismisses that theory, but then... He ends, uh, he ends with uh, this paragraph. A sociopath is often described as someone with little or no conscience. I'll leave it to the psychologist to decide whether Holmes fits that clinical profile, but there's no question that her moral compass was badly askew. I'm fairly certain she didn't initially set out to defraud investors and put patients in harm's way when she dropped out of Stanford 15 years ago. By all accounts, she had a vision that she genuinely believed in and threw herself into realizing... But in her all-consuming quest to be the second coming of Steve Jobs amid the gold rush of the unicorn boom, there came a point when she stopped listening to sound advice and began to cut corners. Her ambition was voracious, and it brooked no interference. If there was collateral damage on her way to riches and fame, so be it. And that's the... Uh, an excerpt from John Carrie Rue's fantastic book, Bad Blood, Secrets and Lies in a Silicon Valley Startup. Yeah, and I mean, that really nails home, I think, like something that was missing from definitely the documentary and to a certain extent, the podcast that we consumed in order to talk about this was that Elizabeth Holm at the end of the day is really like just such a fucking privileged ass kid. I mean, her dad was Enron. You know, she had she was just a rich northern California kid with a lot of privilege and at the end of the day, I mean, that's why she was in this position to, like, fuck up so many people's, you know, lives and shit. And the way she hired, like, inexperienced people who, like, she thought would, like, be extremely, like, obedient to her, it speaks to just an insecurity with her, like, fucking idea. Like, she had to have known this shit wasn't gonna work. Yeah, I mean, like I said, she just thought she was imbued with the strength of being the weird kid in high school and that she would i don't know i guess somehow engineer herself out of reality like i said i, I it's it's genuinely disturbing to see it play out i had some problems with the documentary just in its kind of it was kind of like the hulu fire festival documentary you know it kind of you know like i didn't need to fucking see like when he's talking about like investments um, like a fucking smoky room with like ad executives in like a black and white movie. Like I know what investment means, you know? So it felt like there was like a little too much of that, like kind of, you know, like, all right, we get it kind of footage. And it doesn't even have the best part of my favorite fucking part of the podcast about this. The dropout really was when that fucking one of the earliest, I guess, investors in the company was this guy, Tim Draper, who is such a fucking caricature of like Silicon Valley venture capitalists. He gave her her first million dollars. And in the podcast, in like, they literally have him quoted. And of course, this came out 
after the fallout, after she was raided by CMS, after she you know was featured in the Wall Street Journal and all this shit, and was barred from serving as you know the officer of a public company for like ten years, this guy literally defended her in the podcast. He claimed to have done the blood test and said that the results, the word he used, he said the results that he got from the Edison machine were similar to what he got from a standard <laughs> blood test. And it's just like, my God, like it just goes to show, I think another piece of this, another pillar of the Theranos failure that is underexamined is the fact that these venture capital dudes are dumb as fuck. And they really want to believe to the degree that this guy was just like, I knew her family. I knew she would be great. And I mean, I stand by what I invested in. And like, there, it's genuinely delusional at the end of the day. I mean, that's the only way to look at it. I'm sure the average, you know, one doesn't have like any more intelligence than fucking Sonny. You know, it, it's, I, I, I have to say, like, this was a perfect illustration of the amount of like, how far just like bullshit bluster can get you in Silicon Valley. It's it's astonishing, Sam, the degree to which Holmes was able to pitch herself as the second coming of like I don't know, Da Vinci, like she was compared to Thomas Edison, who uh, one thing I liked in the documentary was they did show that Thomas Edison himself even grifted people for a few years. Yeah, he was like a infamous kind of uh, self-aggrandizing like inventor slash entrepreneur slash businessman i mean he is sort of i guess the prototype for mark zuckerberg or elizabeth holmes or one of these fucking you know what elon musk or one of these other ghouls we make fun of endlessly on the show for believing that they are these singular geniuses who are going to you know deliver man from its primitive state or whatever it's just i don't know it, obviously, it doesn't stand up when they actually try to do this shit unilaterally through these fucked up labor practices. Were all of the old men who signed on to Theranos horny? <laughs> I I do not see Elizabeth Holmes as like a sexual being. I, I like you can say I have whatever fucked up prejudices you want. But be somewhere between the like androgynous voice and the bizarre, large, limpid eyes and self-delusion that she wears on her sleeve, I could not see her as a sexual being. I mean, I even said that she's not butt-banging Sonny Bulwani. They're probably just staring weirdly into each other's eyes all night. That image of Sonny and... Elizabeth coming into the room while like can't touch this is playing and it, it's it's like Lynchian. What a group of ugly people to be at the center of such a disturbing fucking confluence of nonsense. I'm trying to think of how we end the Theranos talk and uh, it, it's tough because uh, there, there's just there, there's more we could talk about this for hours like th this whole episode i i think you know we i guess the point we want to hammer home is like elizabeth holmes was just like flagrant with like i guess how cartoonishly like secretive and fake she was but like there's probably a lot of similar tech people out there just like her yeah and this idea of 
disruption or like innovation for innovation's sake and the idea that whoever creates the thing that makes it easier for humans to live on earth because if the edison was a real thing it would be good but we in this country and in this world this time period we're in have this fucking absurd idea that someone has to own that and that someone has to be at the helm of that and unilaterally move it and we need these kinds of braggadocious like steve jobs elizabeth holmes types to steer us towards this future and i don't think this is a sustainable model for actual innovations i think you know obviously we're lefties on the show but you need to unleash like the creative energies of the people because if you're just unilaterally trying to create this quote-unquote innovation it becomes more of a project about yourself and about the you know corporate machinations and fraud that you can commit to make it look like you actually innovated something different and that's not what the game is supposed to be but the way that incentives and the reward system is set up these days that's what we think the goal is and that is bad and is a bad example to set for your children whether your child is billy mcfarlane and he's going to create a dumbass app and get a bunch of people stranded in the bahamas or whether your child is elizabeth holmes who is going to mislead a major american city about their personal health it's serious and i think this fetishization of this like uh, disruption innovation uh gumption fucking like in a you know if you can't get it done we're a solutions oriented company not a problems oriented company or any of this other like management jargon nonsense that some McKinsey idiot like Pete booty judge would spew at you. It's clearly false and it's clearly meant to benefit the person who is spewing that very nonsense at you. I got a way to bring it back to the beginning. Um, the, the lawyer, um, that was shown in the movie, I think her name was Heather King, was a former Hillary Clinton aide, and she was then like a Theranos lawyer who, in the book, she was just like a extremely like horrid, like, I don't know, like def- like attack dog on behalf of Theranos towards the whistleblowers and towards uh, Carrie Rue, like the Wall Street Journal reporter. And uh, David Boys, who... Not only fucking was uh, uh, you know a representative for Harvey Weinstein, but he also wa- worked with Al Gore for <laughs> the Florida recount. So th- there's weird ties to like the government uh, in Theranos's legal team, and Pete Buttigieg sucks. Folks, I guess I don't know. I guess I didn't really bring it back to the beginning that much. <laughs> Come on, I at least like <laughs> like tried to. Whatever. I mean, that's an episode, folks. I mean, you got like an hour and a half of us yammering on. I think that we've buried Elizabeth Holmes and Theranos. I mean, the 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 story is ongoing. Obviously, no trial date has been set yet for their final i guess you know arraignment or whatever but apparently legal uh elizabeth holmes's legal team is trying to obtain documents from federal agencies that would clear her of wrongdoing and she's she has not given up yet i mean she apparently is trying to found another company there's nothing preventing her from being an operating officer or you know an officer of 
a privately held company as long as she is not the head of like Aetna or whatever. So I mean, oh, and she is engaged. Oh God, to a to a younger gentleman. That poor man, <laughs> an MIT grad who I guess is in the tech world in San Francisco. Someone who actually like finished his college degree before trying to like become serious in the field. Yes, and uh, <laughs> Sonny Balwani, uh, <laughs> wherever you are. Yeah, Sonny, if you're listening, Dan wants to hang out. He seems to really have a fondness for you. The, uh, I mean, this story is going to be in, uh, you know, pop culture for the foreseeable future. There's uh, a movie starring Jennifer Lawrence being made and a Hulu TV show starring Kate McKinnon. Uh, I think these are both solid choices to play Holmes, maybe a little old. I, I don't know. You know, I think the prime years of Theranos was her early 20s, but I don't know. I, I, I am curious what Hollywood's take on this story would be. For sure. I mean, Jennifer Lawrence, I will say, like, cannot act her way out of any kind of bag, but she might be weirdly perfect to play Elizabeth Holmes and maybe Elizabeth Holmes only because Elizabeth Holmes is this kind of, like, non-human. She doesn't seem to have a personality. And that's really the gist of most of Jennifer Lawrence's performances. So I, I think she's actually a perfect choice. And uh, with that, let's uh, let's end it. And we will see you next time, folks. Uh, goodbye. Uh, at Spaventacular on Twitter. At Wagstank on Twitter. At Plunge underscore podcast. And uh, rate, review, subscribe. You know what to do. 